How's everyone doing this week? Good? Okay, got a couple answers. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm feeling pretty run down right now. Um, my son and I took a trip down to Oklahoma City to uh, see one of our favorite hip-hop artists in concert on Friday night. And usually I take the weekends to sleep <laughs> or at least get some level of rest uh, because I'm up early in the morning, uh, usually throughout the week. And so this weekend I did not get my beauty sleep and so I'm feeling pretty wore out this morning. But that does not change, that does not change the business that we have to deal with this morning. So if you've been with us the last two weeks, we've been in the book of Habakkuk, right? So if you have not listened to the last two sermons, I would encourage you to go back and do so. There's a lot in there that if you are listening to this, you might miss as a result of not listening to those previous two sermons. So definitely take time to go do that if you have not. Uh, one thing that I did want to address, I see my brother over there, Tyler. We were having a conversation about uh, kind of how uh, Habakkuk addresses God and kind of how I perceive that. So one of the things that as I kind of read the words of Habakkuk, I start to, to honestly cringe a little bit because I grew up in a military home. And so how you speak to authority figures is very specific, right? You're not, you're not stepping over certain lines. And I felt like Habakkuk, for the most part, did over and over again. But as you start to break down the heart of Habakkuk's issue and why God didn't rebuke him, it makes complete sense why God was okay with Habakkuk talking to him that way, right? He was heartbroken over the sin that he had seen take place throughout Israel, taking place from the top down. And so he's crying out to God saying, why are these things happening, right? If you go to the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the very beginning, right, Jesus uses that blessed is the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are those for, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? Blessed are those who, when they see the sin in the world, they are heartbroken over it. And that is the attitude that Habakkuk had. And so I think when we approach God with that same attitude, I think there is something glorifying about it. So it, it might not be as disrespectful as maybe I made it out to seem. But again, when I start to think about how we address authority figures, it, it, it was just hard for me to, to wrap my mind around how somebody could be talking to the God of the universe that way. Right? And so... Just, yeah, hey, sometimes you're gonna have some feelings about some of the things that you're seeing in the world and you're gonna lament to God about those things and there's nothing wrong with that. I wanna make sure that I make that clear. But that is not the focus of our sermon today. This sermon's gonna be structured a lot like the last one where I'm gonna make a point before I even get into the passage because I think that point is so important for us to understand that if we don't, it's gonna be hard for us to accept some of the truth that we find in these verses. And so as I kind of unpack that, I want to talk about a class that I took back in 2007 with a professor named Doug Aldridge at Ozark Christian College. This class was called Apologetics. If you don't know what apologetics is, it's simply the study of defending the faith. And so we go through a lot of more philosophical ideas, objections people might have to Christianity, and we understand where they're coming from and how we might respond in those situations. And so as I'm in this class, he starts unpacking an idea that some of you may have heard of before, and that is the idea of a worldview, that each of us have a worldview, a way in which we look at everything in the world, how we interpret what's right and wrong, how we interpret where we came from. All of this stuff comes from our worldview. 
Worldview is defined as a framework of ideas and beliefs forming a global description through which an individual group or culture watches or interprets the world it interacts with. I like R.C. Sproul's definition a little bit better. A person's worldview represents his most fundamental beliefs and assumptions about the universe it inhabits. It reflects how he would answer all of the big questions of human existence, fundamental questions about who, we are, who and what we are, where we came from, why we're here, where, if anywhere, we're headed, the meaning and purpose of life, the nature of the afterlife, and what counts as good, a good life here and now. Few people think through these issues with any real depth, and fewer have firm answers to those questions. But a person's worldview will at least incline him, incline him towards certain kinds of answers and, of course, away from others. And so he starts talking about these opposing worldviews uh, to Christianity. And one that he brought up is one that we've actually taught, we taught about last semester in one of our classes. And that was one that was made up in the 70s, and it's one that we call postmodernism. And some people like to say that we live in a postmodern or, I guess, post postmodern society now. But postmodernism, for, for lack of a better definition, just simply means that truth is relative. I want to make sure I simplify that for you. Truth is relative. And so we see this play out when people ask really silly questions like, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? This is a really stupid question, <laughs> right? Yes, of course, it, it makes a sound. Well, what if you're not there to hear it? Like, what are you talking about, man? This is, this is the type of reasoning that we get from this type of understanding of the world. We see this play out more specifically in the area of morality. What is right and wrong? And so what is right for you and what is right for me? Those things might be completely different. There is no universal standard for good because that is constantly changing. This assertion runs rampant in societies today. Right now, you can get online and find articles to support whatever you want to believe. And I, I should put articles in quotation marks. If you want to be a flat earth believer, you can, you can go ahead and do that. If you want to pursue a different lifestyle, you can go ahead and find information to support that. Again, what is true for you might not necessarily be true for me. Good is determined by arbitrary standards that are constantly changing and shifting based off of fads, political climate, or even how the majority in a society might feel. But here's what we have to understand, and this is the one underlying truth that if you are a Bible-believing Christian, I think you have to believe, and that is this, that there is one standard for good, and that is God. God is absolutely the only standard for what is good. There's one standard for morality. There's one standard for what we, what we determine is right and wrong, and that is God himself. Biblical morality is rooted ultimately and inseparably in the unchanging nature of God himself. God ordained the standard by which man should live and he set that standard in himself. To have done otherwise would have been a denial of his own character. Man may be unfaithful, unbelieving, and even immoral, but he, God, remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself, as 2 Timothy 2.13 says. Right or good does not exist as something apart from him, which he arbitrarily decides on. It is him. One commentator wrote, wrote it this way, God has revealed to, a man, to man how man ought to live based on his own character, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life, godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. 
For by these he has granted to us his precious, magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped corruption that is the world by lust. That's 2 Peter 1.3. God's nature or character revealed in the Bible is that he is first of all holy, that he is light, that he is love, that he is righteous, that he is good, that he is merciful, and that he is kind and that he is true. What God is, we ought to be also. He is our standard for morality. He is our standard for what is, what is right and wrong. Then we get to Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, who came in the world and gave us a right example for what it looks like to lead a moral life. And the one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked, 1 John 2, 6. The Apostle Peter also stated, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. That's in 1 Peter 2.2. The Apostle Paul said, therefore be imitators of God, my beloved children, in Ephesians 5. Matt, I thought we were listening to a sermon on Habakkuk, the third installation of this. Why are we talking about all of these other verses? And honestly, I'll tell you this, you would be right. But I think we have to understand that there is one standard by which we live our life, and that is God. Because what we're about to get into is this five woes against the nations. And there are some things that they specifically struggle with that if we can't agree upon what is good and what is not, then it's gonna be really hard for us to accept the underlying truth in this passage. And so in this passage, if you already knew, right, there's been two interactions between God and Habakkuk specifically. And right here, God kind of takes over and says, you know what? I'm done with this. Here is, here is my five woes to the nations. You can find a similar, uh, similar section of scripture in Isaiah chapter five. But he has five woes to, to Babylon specifically, but in the middle, in the, Greek, in the Hebrew, sorry, it switches to plural, meaning it's not just for Babylon, but it is for, these five woes are for all nations. And so we're gonna read and we're gonna unpack. We're actually gonna read all of our verses to start with. We'll unpack a little bit along the way and then we'll make our first point, or second point, I should say. So if you have your Bible, open up Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. Sorry, my voice is a little bit cracky because of uh, the concert the other night. All right, starting verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing riddles for him and say, here's our first woe, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be a spoil for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. First woe, the pillager, well guess what? You're going to be pillaged. Illegal gain is not something that God is for. And so he sends out a warning against them. The second woe, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork. The second woe is that the fortified, well, guess what? You're gonna be dismantled. A modern day example of this might be corporate greed, sucking the resources out of a community for its own personal gain. 
Woe to you. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Whoa, I skipped one. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts, and the people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The civilized will be demoralized. Building an economy off of sin is not how God intended this world to work. Working to glorify man instead of God is against his nature. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done in Lebanon will overwhelm you as the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence of the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. The shameless, well, you will be defamed. Bringing others into your own sinfulness is also not a standard in which God meant for the world. And then lastly, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all of the earth keep silence before him. No, no gods, no powers in heaven and on earth can stand against the reality of the one true God. Idol worship will not be tolerated. I'm going to be honest with you. These verses were particularly hard to prepare for, particularly hard to figure out how to preach. He's speaking warnings against all nations, specifically Babylon. And the truth is there has not been a nation besides Israel that has not transgressed in these ways. Israel had a covenant relationship with God and they were appointed for a specific purpose, right? To show the world who God, the the one true living God was and to take over the promised land. But even when they transgressed, God punished them. In Joshua 7, Achan stole some devoted things from one of the cities they were taking over, from the promised land. And as a result, the nation suffered and Achan was stoned to death. But here's a question, how many of you guys are running a nation? Yeah, no hands? Okay. How many of you, right, how many of you are uh, disciplining and invading other nations? Now, this one could be tricky because we do live in a military town, correct? But the way that we invade and take out other nations is not like what he's talking about here. They invaded other nations to capture territories, to take over, to make empires. The world doesn't work that way anymore. At least it doesn't seem like it, right? And so how do we apply these verses to the way that we live our life. Another way I thought about going with this is getting specific. Each of these are specific woes, specific sins that some of us might have committed. And so trying to figure out how do I apply these to the way that we live our life, it can be rather difficult. How many pillagers do we have in here? No hands? Okay. How many of you are struggling with committing corporate sin or illegal gain? Hopefully none of you. Let's just put it that way. Hopefully none of you are struggling with that, okay? And so getting lost in the specifics of these verses can be very, 
very easy. But we have to remember that these verses were written in a specific context, and that context matters. And so even though Babylon committed these sins, even though nations committed these sins, there is an underlying sin that I think overshadows all of these. Chapter 1, verse 7 says, They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. 1 verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose might is their own God. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. That's chapter two, verse four. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. Babylon's primary issue and most nations' primary issue was that of pride. Pride is one of the hardest things to preach about, not because there's not enough information. We could literally spend years preaching about the Bible and how it talks about the issue of pride. The problem with talking about pride is that most people deal with it, but don't think that they do. Most people struggle with pride, but are unwilling to admit it. Each of these woes has its root in pride. The first three are centered on greed, an accumulation of what you want no matter what. Greed is strong and selfish desire to have more of something, most often money or even power. There are many warnings in the Bible about giving in to greed and longing for riches. Jesus warned us about this in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Matthew 6, 19, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. You cannot serve both God and money. The root of greed is putting you at the center. I want what I want and I'm going to get it. The fourth woe is a power play. It's not enough for you to sin, but we, sometimes we decide to drag others into our dysfunction as well. The heartbreaking reality about this sin in particular is that it is a very much alive and well today. People are taking advantage of in this way all of the time, and it is wicked and it abhorrent. But the root here is still pride. It is placing yourself at the center and influencing others to keep you there. An example of this in today's world is something that we like to talk about called gossip. When we take it upon ourselves to share information about others, for no good reason we drag others into our own sinfulness. It's indulging in the same sin that leads to some of these abhorrent things that are referenced even here. The root of this is pride in Romans 1, 28 through 32 speaks about this sin very harshly. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they only do them. They, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. We drag others into our own sin. 
And the last one, the last woe, its root is in pride as well, and that is the sin of idolatry. Worshiping the created over the creator. He is talking about statues and and figurines, but when we allow our souls to be fed by wins and losses on Friday and Saturday, we commit the same idolatry. Friday night, Cooper and I went to a concert, and I guarantee you idol worship was taking place at that concert. Worshiping the created over the creator. Everything that was created, whether we are talking about the things on this earth or even the talents that we have been given have been created for the glory of God and him alone. When we see an amazing play on the football field or listen to our favorite hip-hop singer or see an incredible sunrise, we have to remember that God gets the glory for those things, not us. Psalm 19, 1 and 2 And down in verse 14 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out the speech, and night to night reveals his knowledge. Verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their utter spiritual bankruptcy and their inability to come to God aside from his divine grace. But the proud, on the other hand, are so blinded by their pride that they think they have no need for God or even worse, this goes back to our worldview discussion, that God should accept them as they are. Remember my first point, there is one standard for what is good and that is God. And my second point is this, we are not the center of his universe. He is. He is the center of his universe. When we compare ourselves and others in order to deflect from our own sin, we are allowing pride to seep in, but he is the center of all things, not us. We are not the, 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 the arbiters of truth, he is. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn above all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I love this last part. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Pride, it's something we all struggle with, but few of us like to admit. We are not the center of of the universe. He is the standard of good. Now, these five woes, there's two verses within these five woes that would be easily missed that, honestly, I missed the first few times I read it until I got into some of my commentary study. But there's two verses in here that I think have a hidden truth that we have to be aware of. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Through the judgment or discipline of the proud, God will prepare the others to experience the glory of the Lord. We see this same idea being portrayed in other places in Scripture, both in Numbers 14 and Isaiah 14. God's glory is shown through his discipline and his judgment. But Ephesians 3 uses the same language when, it's, when, when Paul prays for the, the, the church at Ephesus, and it says this, and I paraphrase it a little bit just so you know, that we may have the power to grasp how wide, how long, 
How high and how deep is the, is the love of Christ and to know the love that surpasses knowledge. Here's where that verbiage is the same. That they may be filled to the, to the measure all the fullness of God. Babylon's destruction gave great relief to a troubled world, right? They were, they were ruthless. It was very descriptive about how bad that they were. But understand this, God's continual exercise of his righteous judgment serves for his glory. The same thing is true about discipline. And so when we experience these things, it's a chance for us to either humble ourselves or dig in our heels. We get to choose. But the, and then verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. The temple stood in the midst of Israel as a place of his presence and his lordship among his people. It seems like they might have forgot about that. But here's what we get to understand. From a new covenant perspective, this is applied to the body of Jesus. And here's what we can't forget. To the body of the believer. If you are in Christ, you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. You are a temple of sorts. But also the body that is the church. The same verbiage, the same word is used to describe those three things in our modern context, and we cannot lose sight of that. The five woes finish with a call to silence. Silence is often something that is, that is associated not with pride, but with humility. When I was in college, uh, I'm going to reference college again, I don't know why I did that, but when I was in college, uh, I was a junior uh, my wife's watching this right now. We, we had been married uh, not too long, and I would still go in and visit some of my friends that were in the dorm rooms. And uh, we'd talk about different things going on in class or what we had going on. And I remember one day we were talking about some, some theological concepts that we were studying in class. And I remember a, a true freshman, like, like first semester, hadn't been there very long, comes into the room and, and sits down. His name was Peter Corrado, and he tries to dialogue with us about what we were learning. And Brandon turns to him in the middle of this and just says, hey, I'm not trying to, be, try, trying to be mean or rude. You could definitely sit here and hang out, but I promise you, you would do a lot better if you would just sit and listen. And like, he didn't know how to handle it. He didn't know how to handle it. He, was, he, was, he didn't know whether to be offended or encouraged at this point. And he said, well, what do you mean, why? He said, well, I've just seen a lot of freshmen come in and out of this, this school and they spend a lot more time talking and a lot less time listening. They spend time in class talking about questions that the, the professor is undoubtedly going to answer at some point, wasting other people's time while they should just be listening to what the professor has to say. Or they come into a space like this where they could be soaking in and they could be learning, but yet all they want to do is hear themselves talk. Peter ended up leaving that room that day. And we still had a good friendship, good relationship all the way throughout, but after college, a few years after college, Peter and Brandon ran into each other. Brandon told me this. And Peter said, hey, I want to thank you. And Brandon's like, what you, why? Like, what you, why are you thanking me? He said, you literally changed my life that day. And he's like, what? He didn't, he didn't even know what he was talking about. Brandon doesn't even remember this conversation taking place. And so Peter tells him the story about what Brandon had said to him. And he said, I can't imagine who I would be had I not taken time to stop and listen. He said, my entire world was turned upside down in that moment. Peter had a taste of humility, and that's something that maybe he hadn't experienced all that often. 
And I think these verses end with this call to silence for the exact same reason. Okay, Habakkuk, you've spoken enough. Okay, nations, understand this. You're risen up for a time right now, but your end's gonna come. You will be humbled, don't worry. If God's punishment is for the proud and the haughty, then what should we pursue in light of this? Humility. When God is the one standard for good and you have no choice but to humble yourself before him, then you have no, sorry, I just completely butchered that. When God is the one standard for good, you have no choice but to humble yourself before him. When he is the benchmark for how you should live your life, then it obviously is going to be much different because God's glory brings about humility. Psalm 10.4 explains that the proud are so consumed with themselves that their thoughts are far from God. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him in all the thoughts there is no room for him. This kind of haughty pride is the opposite of the spirit of humility that God seeks. Being the anti-Babylon is gonna call for a much different posture. In scripture, over and over again, when people encounter the glory of God, they fall on their face. The prophet Ezekiel fell on his face in chapter one when God's glory came before him. Moses, when he simply saw God's back, his face radiated like the sun and people couldn't even look at him. Some of you are thinking about Halloween and you might pray that prayer, but I don't think it's gonna work for you. His face was so radiant that they couldn't even look at him. God's glory will bring about humility whether willful or by force. He is the one standard we judge good and evil by which makes him our center and there is no other way around it. When I think of defining humility in the scriptures, there's one set of verses that I tend to run to and that is in Philippians chapter, chapter two, verse one through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name is that above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is our standard for what is good because he himself is good. We are not the center of his universe and his glory undoubtedly will bring about humility whether we want it to or not. And so some of you might be thinking, okay, well, what does it look like to pursue humility? Step one, make sure you tell everybody how humble you are. No, it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. 
I'll be honest with you. This is something that I struggle with this week. I didn't even have this in here, Ronnie. This, I'm going to throw this in here. This week, Ronnie was giving me a little bit of constructive criticism on my sermon last week, and I felt pride starting to well up within me. How could you question what, like that sermon I preached last week? It was great. But we had a good conversation about it, and, and, uh, and it was good. But I'm not going to act like I don't struggle with pride. It is, it is a constant struggle for me, much like it is for each one of you. And so I went to one of my favorite speakers or teachers to look at how, how did he address the believer to pursue humility. And he gave three things. He says this, we, he said, we can pursue humility when we understand and acknowledge our own weaknesses. The Bible gives a very specific image of what it looks like to be part of the church. What is that? It's a body, Right? And so some of you are going to be hands and some of you are going to be eyeballs and some of you are going to be ears and some of you are going to be legs. And the, the underlying truth in that is that not everybody is everything and no one's gift is more important than someone else's. And so some of you might not be up here teaching and some of you might not be in there serving, but you have a gift that God has given you and you need to acknowledge that both you have shortcomings as well as gifts that God has given to you to use for his glory. The second one is stay curious. Curiosity is a playful way of acknowledging that there are things you don't actually know. Surprising, right? A lot of times we can run into the dangerous trap of becoming Google experts. But I promise you, you're 12 minutes of searching on Google and your, another 10 minutes of reading whatever it is you found isn't going to make you an expert on things. There are things that you don't know, and guess what? That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Psalm 8, David says this, When I consider your heavens or the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? human beings that you would even care for them. King David had it all and he was still curious about how God could do some of these things. The last one is this, learn to acknowledge others and their contributions. Hebrews 10, 20, 10 24 says this, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some have the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Some of you guys have heard us talk about Eric over here and how he's the, uh, the dad of the, of the staff, right? I will not lie to you. There have been staff meetings that I've wanted to drop kick Eric in the knees. His personality is much different than mine. But here's what I have to acknowledge. I need Eric. Ronnie needs Eric. Because Ronnie and I have all these great ideas, but we have no understanding of what the details are going to look like. Or we sometimes forget that, hey, other people are going to have to be involved with this, and how are we going to make this work? Eric's the detail guy. And so is it good for me to not acknowledge that and just to dropkick him in the knees? Probably not, right? That's not going to create a healthy staff relationship. If we do that with other people in the body, not willing to acknowledge and spur them on, how are we cultivating this body that God has entrusted us with or allowed us to be a part of? 
We have to be willing to acknowledge others. And the last one, as we kind of get ready for communion, oh no, I forgot my communion. He's got me. All right. Don't look into that too much, all right? I'm glad that that was sealed. All right, so I said it last week. I said it again before. I will, I will preach this till the day that I die. Acknowledging your own brokenness before Jesus, before God, before men is central to living a life of humility. Because if we are broken, if we understand our own sinfulness, our depravity, then how could we stand in pride before a holy God? God gave us Jesus in order for us to remember that sacrifice that he gave us, that sacrifice that we absolutely did not deserve. And so as we come to this time of communion, man, let go of that pride. Acknowledge your own brokenness before him. Reflect on how, who you would be if it wasn't for Jesus who broke his body for you so that you could have a relationship with him.